Welcome back to Understanding VC. I am your host Rahul. My guest today is Mariana Senko. Mariana is an early stage venture capitalist and co-founder of Future Ventures and some of their early investments includes the Boring Company, Commonwealth Fusion, D-Wave, Planet, Skype, SpaceX, Tesla and Upside Foods, which represents 1 trillion dollars in aggregate value creation. She invests in frontier technologies with an interest in robotics, quantum computing, blockchain, aerospace and the future of food. Prior to Future Ventures, she has also held stints at Coastal Ventures, DFJ and Airbus Ventures. Now let's talk to her. Hi Marena, thank you so much for joining me today on my podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Arul. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Is your family uh, from Ukraine? That's right. I was originally born in Lviv, which is in western Ukraine near the Polish border, and so my my parents and I immigrated when I was quite young, but my extended family and my grandmother is still there. Hope she's safe now. Thank you. As safe as one can probably relatively be in a place like that right now. So there's certainly a lot of cause for concern, but yeah, the family's just trying to do the best we can. Okay. So I know you're doing research for this podcast. Uh, uh, I was looking at your Instagram. Uh, I see that uh, you're a very outdoor person. Uh, is there any outdoor activity uh, that uh, you you don't like or you don't do? Uh, because I think the only thing that I've seen not seen was like maybe skydiving or something. <laughs> That's yeah. We I'm very fortunate. My partner and I live in Northern California, which is a pretty spectacular place to go play in the outdoors. We haven't picked up paragliding, um, although I used to fly small planes. Uh, but I, I think certain sports just require a lot of commitment of time to ensure that they're safe. And uh, yeah. so we, we try to spread ourselves pretty thin, doing a lot of interesting things, but we're, we're mindful to not take on unreasonable risks. Is there anything that you're afraid to do? <laughs> That I'm afraid to do? Um, I think playing with the balance of fear and control and what's like skating that edge is an, is an interesting space. So I think I take pretty calculated risks. And so I am not interested in participating in activities that have kind of, you know, near certain death outcomes. And I'm not particularly interested in being at risk of severe bodily harm. And so I would say while I maybe look adventurous between the mountain biking and the horseback riding and motorcycles, my own form of participation in those sports is actually pretty metered. So I have this irrational fear for scuba diving uh, because mm. because the weekend that I tried to learn scuba diving was like a supermoon weekend. And then the, the waves were like 20 feet <laughs> tall. And I think I have this irrational fear, which I can't overcome so far. <laughs> I hear, I mean, it takes a lot. We, we surf a lot at home and the waves are not very big. And we went down to Costa Rica for a surf camp and the waves were overhead height. And, you know, the first yeah. day I was just terrified, but I had a spectacular coach and he just kind of convinced me that, you know, you, if you stay within your, your tolerance and your comfort zone, you, you can overcome those things. Um, yeah. But I completely know the experience you're talking about of, you know, once you're flooded and overwhelmed with fear and concern, it's it's really hard to recalibrate and go back to like, you know, staying calm and, and regulating. So, yeah, I think it's important to play with that edge, but not push yourself past it. 
because then yeah. your whole you know your whole body kind of shuts down when it comes to uh, other interest in terms of like academic and other things what were your interests growing up i was really fortunate my my parents are both these brilliant engineers and they really growing up they kind of taught me to look at the world and figure out how things work and so i really i've always enjoyed the experience of trying to trying to understand how and why things uh, are the way that they are and so i, I think like a, a design thinking ideology was baked into me early so always asking the question of why and at the same time i also grew up being dragged around every possible museum and so this question of aesthetics and playing between the balance of aesthetics and utility or aesthetics and function so those have been areas that i've always been curious about whether they be scientific curiosities or artistic and creative passions i'm always trying to explore that space maybe interested in architecture then i love architecture we're actually designing a home right now that hopefully we'll someday build, get to build and live in and there's this concept of an ontological tool which is to say that uh, the tools that we use then design us and i think architecture and particularly home building is a perfect example of like you know your orientation of a living room and a kitchen and where the bedrooms are and what's public space and what's private space it really drives the interior environment of the home and how people interact within it you know our kids yeah. bedrooms right next to yours are on the other side of the house yeah. our public spaces open or closed and i think you can also what i think is fascinating in architecture is you can see cultural differences throughout exactly. architecture right but yeah. The architecture of where you live is so different than the architecture of California. I think in America just like this there's a whole individualism you can be it can be seen in the the homes where like every kid has like a different room with a attached bathroom or whatever uh, but I think in Europe is different like like I just mentioned I'm traveling to Spain so we we really f- uh, found it hard to find a lot of houses with attached bathrooms and stuff because it's like like uh, yeah it's not that privacy is not uh, important thing probably in europe i, I don't know yeah it's true? it's interesting and one of the i just spent some time in south america and there you can see there's this um there's kind of like concentric circles of the home where there there's more like greeting rooms and like these sala spaces where it's for for guests and then into the kind of center or heart of the home only like the 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 people or relatives or most trusted guests enter. And that's very different from American homes where it's kind of like you often just burst in to the yeah. main space. And so I yeah, I I find architecture both building design and and home design it it's so fascinating because it drives so many of our interactions in a way that we don't even perceive. Yeah. May I ask uh, who are some of your favorite uh, architects? So growing up in I I got to go to high school in New Haven, Connecticut and so Louis Kahn or Louis Kahn was kind of a central figure there in having designed some of the some of the build a particular museum on the Yale campus. The Beinecke Library is also a spectacular building there and I have to give a shout out to my friend Joshua Ramos, um the principal at uh, Rex uh, Studios who's currently designing the 
the Perlman Center and Performing Arts Center in New York. And I really appreciate the way in which he thinks about buildings changing shape through time and, and really using them. I am Pei, I think, is a really impressive architect on the large building side as well. There's a, the Buck Institute here in in the Northern Bay Area is, is a fascinating example of his work. And on the home side, I mean, our, our own architect, James Cutler, is, I just, I find the homes that he's built so warm and welcoming and integrated with nature. And I think that more more architecture should be part of the landscape rather than kind of thrown into it and in opposition yeah. of it. Now let's talk about investing in startups. So you only invest in startups that are like technology risk, risk, right? Yeah, I well, I, I want to be cautious there, which is to say that we don't invest. The, so I started a firm called Future Ventures and my co-founder, Steve Jurvetson and I, thought a lot about what does the world need? And I think we can all collectively agree that the world needs another venture capital fund about as much as it needs a hole in the head. There's a lot of them. It's not obvious what any one of them does that's so profoundly good that that kind of resource can't go elsewhere. And so our specific question in starting the fund is, what does it look like to fund things that are good for the world? And I'm not saying we're alone in this. There's a lot of spectacular venture funds out there who are doing this, but it's also not the central ethos of the field. To make large changes that enable the the betterment of all, all all species and all creatures and all things living on this planet to flourish and enable a more verdant world... That, that requires fundamental shifts, right? Any of us opening our eyes and looking around today go, oh, we, we got to fix some things. I'm pretty sure that enterprise software is not going to fix those things. That said, we are mindful that we are still a venture capital fund and we have to exist within the bounds of that to some extent. And so we, you know, there where we like to invest is that translational stage between science and engineering, where the science is largely proven, but what's unproven is the engineering. So it's not to say that our companies don't have risks. They do have very large risks, but what they're doing is not fundamentally impossible or on a, or on a first principle physics kind of question, unreasonable, despite the fact that we have, you know, investments in things like fusion energy. And so I mean, why do those, why, why invest in risky things? Well, you know, what else are we doing? I, I, I can't, I, I don't see that as a negative or a concern. I see it as this, it's the most interesting thing one could possibly be doing is like how big of a lever can you press? If you look at the industry right at the beginning, almost all firms were only doing this kind of investments, right? And then they moved to, you know, all the other things. That's right. So so do you think like a fund can get away with just doing this? So uh, and people would want to do like balanced portfolio, right? You know, you would also want B2B SaaS and what else, what not, so that you can balance this kind of activities. I suppose. I think, I think the industry got a little myopic and greedy and short-sighted. I think the original venture capitalists, you know, the, the people who, who funded the Fairchild Semiconductor Days, I, I think that they were more courageous and visionary than a lot of the industry is now. 
And I think the reality is that they did exceptionally well, but people are now more impatient. So I do think that you can build funds that are wholly focused on this. You just need a little more patient capital. If you're looking for two-year return cycles, then yeah, you either need to do wholly software style feedback loops or or some type of balanced portfolio, which would be better than not doing anything in the harder tech spaces at all. But I I think that this idea that you know quick turn, low capital costs, low expenditures, software companies are the best possible thing for everyone to be building. I, I think that's kind of a sorry viewpoint on the world. It's it's yeah. it suggests that the only thing we should be rushing after is to take a large pile of money and turn it into a larger pile of money. And if that's the singular motivation for a person's existence, I find that lacking to be perfectly honest. Yeah. I've read the story of Genentech, you know, funded by uh, Kleiner Perkins. Uh, that is just yeah, fascinating and uh, for somebody who is not uh, from the domain to pair up with a scientist and to build the artificial insulin. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that's one of the great uh, outcomes of venture capital. That's right. Yeah. yeah, my I'll just I'll add my my co-founder Steve likes to say that we fund the kinds of companies that history books will be written about. I think that's the point, right? Like companies like Genentech, people will remember for what they've actually accomplished. Um, Companies like SpaceX, you know, for every faster payment processing service. I mean, you know, we're going to forget those companies just as quickly as we built them. Which other fund do you think is like the closest to future ventures uh, in terms of how you operate? Just curious. Um, I'm not sure whether there's any fund that's like fully focused on... (laughs) these sort of investments? I, I think there are. I, I think there's a couple ways in which you could think about us in terms of who is who is like us, right? So for one, we're a very small team. It's yeah. just Steve and myself on the investment side. And so there's a, a nimbleness to us as a result of that. And also there's only so much we can see in the world. And so I don't actually, there there are a handful of funds out there who have equivalently small teams or small relative. I mean, I think Benchmark has proven that um, a a small tight partnership can be exceptionally effective. In terms of funds that focus entirely on deep tech or or kind of the this idea of good for the world or climate forward, I actually think that there's quite a few of them. And there and some have been around for quite a long time. Of uh, Prelude Ventures, Congruent, I think fifty years on the early seed side, lower carbon capital. There's, I, yeah, you know, I I hesitate to list more because then I'll I'll invariably have forgotten people, and that's not fair. So I would say there there are so many funds now that take this bent of being entirely focused on positive companies, kind of world positive companies, to use a phrase from the team at Obvious Ventures. I mean, they've had this as a thesis for a long time. I also think that what I see, which is actually maybe in some ways more inspiring to me, is that funds that have traditionally focused on more straight and narrow, enterprise SaaS, fintech, tech investments are now starting to hire people into their own teams and saying, hey, can you look at the impact of our portfolio and how do we qualify 
how how good these companies are in the world. And while I made a dig at payments companies, I think Stripe is actually doing unbelievably good things in the climate space yeah. and is doing a climate accelerator and is actually funding startups in the space, right? So there's something to be said for reaching some level of fiscal independence to then drive dollars into the direction of the, the things that you think are kind of need to exist in the world. Yeah. So I would say it's not a crowded field, unfortunately. I would love for it to be because I think that would mean more people doing more good. But but with, we're certainly not alone. Yeah. I think you've mentioned this, uh, you know, investing with the abundance mindset. Uh, what do you mean by that? I think one of there's this saying that, you know, on the, on the short term, we we tend to overestimate what we're capable of. And on the long term, we, we tend to underestimate. And I think having a mindset of, yes, things are problematic right now. Sea levels are rising. Polar bears are losing their habitat. Fires are taking over. It's a, it's a pretty tragic story in a lot of ways. There's also an opportunity in that. There are so many ways in which people are so creative and so driven and motivated by solutions and so if you constantly have the lens that we can do better and that there are more efficient and viable and scalable ways to, for example, provide better, cleaner energy to large swaths of the world population, to grow more nutritious and healthier food without relying on chemical compounds that disrupt our endocrine systems, I, I think that there's a lot of capacity for future technologies to really shift the realities of our world today. And we tend to underestimate that as a whole. And so I think I try not to over-index on how horrible things might be and try to look at the world from the perspective of, we really desperately need solutions. What could operate on a level that could actually address this? Yeah, the the human ingenuity, right? So, uh, I mean, one example that I can share is like, uh, uh, he's an American, by the way, uh, Norman Borlaug. Uh, so uh, his seeds and, and the productivity that came along with it really changed a country like India, Pakistan, Mexico, because we went from food shortage to, you know, 100% food security forever, ever since that happened. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, th- there were a, a bunch of people predicting that there would be like, uh, vast, you know, people, millions of people dying and this and that. You know, none of that has happened. Uh, I'm yeah. probably s- sitting here and talking to you because that happened. Exactly. I think that's such a perfect example, right? It's it's these moments, and I and I think they're worth pausing and looking back at and celebrating. You know, they, I I believe that these are deeply motivating moments because it is yeah. generally just a handful of people who figure something out. Yeah. And we all exist in this giant interconnected system. And so, you know, it taking places that go from food deserts to being some of the most abundant places on earth is, is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. Like we, no, no one who was running an analysis of what was going to happen accounted for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think a lot of people predicted millions of deaths. <laughs> and um, it's fair. Right. And, and both, both ideologies are important. I, I think that we, we also can't sit around this is, this is Paul Hawkins' point in, in Project Drawdown, which is that 
we have the solutions we need today to address climate change and we need to start acting on them now. And the, the problem is that most of those solutions are hard to implement or require too much more cooperation than people are willing to do or are economically costly for people. And so, but, but I still think we need to do as much of that as we physically and feasibly can so that then when an exponential shift mediated by technology arrives, it, ha- it doesn't have to do as much, right? Like you, you want to do as much as you can with the technologies and the capacities you have today to ensure that the technologies that do come along, that they don't, they don't have to do that much of a lift. Yeah. Yeah. When you're judging a tech, especially a startup working in a deep tech, how, how does that work? Because the, the commercialization, uh, it could take much longer than like, let's say a SaaS or anything like that, right? So how do you judge? You judge just... <laughs> judging the team or yeah so there's a, there's a couple of things so one is we we take we we try to take very little market risk which is to say that one thing that you can do is you can talk to potential customers and say in the case of commonwealth fusion systems if we could produce energy at this cost per kilowatt hour, would you buy that energy? And if the answer resoundingly is yes, absolutely, then you're not that worried, right? And then there's this, and then there's the question of, okay, but now you have to build the fusion plant. And so we try to look at it from a couple of angles, which is first and foremost, how much capital is required to take down the biggest risk pieces? So one of the reasons that we haven't invested in a quantum computer to date is, well, well, Steve invested in D-Wave many years ago, but from a different fund. But one of the reasons that we haven't made another investment in the space is by our approximation, it's going to take some tens to hundreds of millions of dollars to build a system at sufficient scale to then see if it can solve any interesting problems. And so that means that your capital expenditure before you find out if the system works is really, really high. Right. And you have this binary outcome at some later standpoint. And that, that's quite concerning. So we, we try to find technologies and companies where we can upfront mediate the risks. The, the same is true in biotech platform companies. Right. How, how far can you stretch five or 10 or 15 million dollars to de-risk the clinical programs you might be building before you spend tens of millions or hundreds of millions actually trying to bring something through clinical trial. So we really look at, does the company have a plan to speed the pace and cost of experimentation and proving its kind of technology readiness? Hand in hand with that is, are, are there brilliant people involved? Like are, 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 are clever people who are experts in the field leaving otherwise comfortable and safe and interesting positions to take on the risk of working at whatever startup we're talking about. And, you know, a biggest, a big flag for us is when, when a founder comes in and says, you know, I first have to raise this many millions of dollars before I can hire the team. And our answer is for the best and most interesting things, the team shows up first and then they figure out how to fund themselves. And I, I don't support people putting themselves in financially risky situations for themselves or their families but I do believe that the right people show up and are motivated and are motivated beyond just immediate monetary gains. What is your relationship uh, with the founders that you invest in like? Hopefully positive. You should ask them. I think 
we tend to invest in the kind of founders who tend to have, most of our founders have some form of technical background, if not the CEO, then certainly the CTO and, and often just throughout the entire executive team. And so we recognize that their first and foremost challenge is getting the, the product to work and function and, and sort out the, the engineering and, and the finer points of that. And so one way in which we endeavor to be helpful is tapping on our own networks and really evangelizing these companies and supporting as many brilliant people to make the transition to joining those, those companies. We've been so fortunate to see so many of our portfolio companies just have, have this exceptional capacity to hire really, really brilliant and really motivated people. I, I think we find that to be true just across mission-driven companies. I think we also, one of the realities that we, Steve and myself, have the the gift and the opportunity to look broadly across the investment space and and understand patterns among types of companies. And when you're an entrepreneur working on a company, you really only know your company. And so one of the things that we try to provide is kind of a sense of here's what's happening in the markets. Here's, you know, here's how fundraising might go and certainly connections with follow on investors and potential partners. So we, we tend to just open our networks entirely and, to whatever means we can be of service to the companies we work with, we endeavor to be. But this is generally the case with almost every other uh, VC firm, right? So um, is there any particular activity that you've found which is like uh, the most useful for these sort of startups? sure i'm not sure that this is like the space that requires the innovation right like i think this is just a fundamental truth of the industry i think perhaps where we offer a little more insight is that while our portfolio is exceptionally diverse right we have everything from b immunology pollination companies to ai chipset like you know specific computational hardware for accelerating AI to advanced energy companies, one would say, how can, what is the overlap or the adjacency between these companies such that, such that having the broad sweep of understanding these spaces. And I think at the end of the day, technology companies that are solving some of the most difficult problems, they, they, they're still employing people. And most of those people are engineers and most of those companies have similar style issues. And I think that entrepreneurship can be an exceptionally lonely position. And so a lot of what we offer is conversation, comparison, and reminders that what the companies in our portfolio are going through are completely normal and that others have done it before. And I think that we also always try to enable partnership and, and connection between uh, adjacencies in our portfolio. But I, I don't know that there's, I, I don't think there's some secret hack that we've figured out about how to support these companies other than being a consistent sounding board and a reminder that like, nope, others have gone through this before. It's not, it's, it's not new and novel, uh, but it is hard. Are you just focused in the U.S.? We're primarily focused in the U.S. And that's a question of kind of an adverse selection bias, right? So we 
we most commonly invest in the geographies where we have the strongest networks by the very simple nature that that's where we tend to see the most interesting companies. If there's a brilliant company in Eastern Europe, for example, or India, the likelihood that we would see it seems quite low to me. And so we, we try to invest in the areas where we have the strongest networks. And so there's, there's certainly a North American bent to that, but we're, we have we have several companies in the portfolio that have global footprints and and some that are headquartered in in Europe and and elsewhere and so it's not a hard and fast rule it's just a tendency. I was just trying to figure out like you know where where are the most interesting deep tech startups coming from? I think there is. Uh... I think they're around the universities to to in in a lot of sense like the, this is I would say. If for most companies, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success. I, I would say in deep tech, it takes 30 years in the sense that most of the most interesting research that has to be built on over time to hit a level of maturity and consistency and scalability such that it's actually worth starting a company around, it's really only academic centers that have that kind of longevity. And so you can... You know, you can pretty much draw a radius around the major technical universities around the world and say these tend to be pretty good hubs. Okay. So you basically look at, uh, you know, uh, which universities spend the most on research? (laughs) To some extent, I think, for example, Commonwealth Fusion essentially came out of the Plasma Fusion Center that was, you know, 35 plus years of research at MIT. I think that deep genomics, Brendan Frey was a professor at the University of Toronto. Jeff Hinton, in many ways, is the one of the first pioneers of deep learning techniques, uh, also at the University of Toronto. And, and so that, that pool of talent, that lineage, in the same way that my alma mater, Carnegie Mellon, is a, is a bed of exceptional talent in the robotics field. Yeah, so nice. sometimes it's about dollars spent on research, but I think it's more that it often drives from just where certain exceptionally talented individuals have set down roots and where their academic lineages have grown from. Now I'd like to uh, know a little bit more about the fund itself. Like, uh, I think you already talked about why you started a fund, but then I understand that it's like, other than like the normal 10 year cycle, it's like a 15 year old, uh, 15 year old cycle. So why, why 15 year old? Uh, yeah, I mean, it'd be great if it was even longer to some extent. Although, although I think 15 years is is a is a good and healthy life cycle. I think much longer than that, and and things can kind of stagnate. But I think the simple reality is, you know, your typical enterprise software company should hit profitability in you know some short order handful of years, and that's just not true for large scale engineering companies like it. And, and so in a 10 year cycle, when a company is just hitting its stride at year seven or eight, that that's when you want to be pouring more capital in and, and further supporting them and really letting them take the lion's share of a market, not figuring out how to dissolve and sell and exit your position as quickly as possible. And so in stating that we're a 15-year fund, we, we essentially said to RLPs, our investors, that we understand the, the 
the pace and the evolution of these kinds of companies. And we are from the outset saying that we intend to be a long-term partner. I think uh, some of the the growth can only, I mean, you can only read the benefits of the growth when it's like the 15-year-old cycle. Exactly, right? So it's like, why, why be worried? You know, if the majority of the value is going to come in those out years, it, it just seems like missing the opportunity. I think that's the reason why Sequoia was talking about this ever, ever green fund. So how does that work? Then how do you calculate, you know, the, the returns and stuff? I mean, I have no idea how Sequoia does it. They have their own system. I, I think evergreen funds are an interesting, if different modality. I For us, it's just the same, just the... We maybe expect the bottom of the J curve to be a little longer and flatter in terms of it. It probably will take a number of years before our companies really start being market dominant players. And so we, we try to look for those inflection points early. And I, I, I do think that there's a trend towards this. There was even conversation around things like the long term stock exchange. Like I, I do think that people recognize the, the value of, of holding for, for longer periods of time. I, I think that's the single best thing to do in everything in life. You know, I, I always think about uh, compounding. Uh, it's the one advice that you can give people in terms of health, wealth, anything else. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You're, 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 you're completely correct. And it, it's one of those things that you, you can't really, it, it's hard for us to think in exponentials, right? And so things like compounding interest are deeply unintuitive. So I recently came across this tweet, you know, there there isn't enough financial stability at the core of people's life. Uh, If there was, uh, there would be little incentive to speculate. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. I love that. I think that's true. So also, yes, most funds have the team, you know, big funds like Sequoia, Axel, all, they all have like a lot of analysts and associates and, you know, uh, all the services model. You don't have anything. Uh, why is that? Um, I I want to be careful here because I, I, I don't want to suggest that, that those funds aren't doing good jobs. I think those are really valuable services. But I think simply the best possible version of a service provider is probably not inside a venture fund, right? Like the best PR firm you could work with or the best IP lawyer. And so I think a lot of these firms are very good at offering support and services. And it's kind of like your one-stop shop at the earliest days of a company. And that's quite valuable, but pretty quickly companies outgrow these kind of generic services and they need something that's more homespun and specific to them. And so what we found is rather than employing those services in-house to have connections, to have close ties with the best people in the industry, and then to call them and say, I know you're really busy, but I have a company that's literally changing the world. And this is the most exp- exciting thing you could possibly be working on. And can you can you take them on as a client? And so it's not that we don't help companies find their way to excellent support. It's that we think that that excellent support is probably best found outside of the organization. And in terms of analysts and, and principals, we've thought about this a lot. And at the end of the day, our our partnership 
works for us. I'm not saying it's holistically the correct way to run a venture fund, but we're efficient. We certainly lose emails. I'm certain that there will be people listening to this and saying, yeah, yeah, but like, you, you know, you didn't answer my email. And it's true. There, there, there's a, a cost to, in some ways, being short-staffed. But the flip side is that there's so much institutional knowledge between Steve and myself. Like we can both really hold the entirety of the venture fund and our learnings and our portfolio in our heads, right? Because it's between just the two of us. And so the the course of communication between us, our, our capacity to grasp the entirety of the organization and how it's moving forward, I think is much deeper than when I worked at larger funds where they're, they're these big, many-pieced machines. And so it's, it's hard to understand the structure as a whole. Yeah. So I've, I've worked in a fund, interned at a fund, uh, which is quite similar to how you operate. But yeah, it had a, little, uh, a couple of associates. But I, I felt like the, when the partners are like firefighting all the time. So you have these like 20 to 40 uh, portfolio companies and then you have this commitment that, you know, we will help you with this and that. And, and then it's like, if you look at their schedule, it's really bad. Uh, and um, a lot of them, you end up disappointing because when you, at the time of like raising capital, you make a promise that, you know, you will support for this, this and that activity. And then maybe, yeah, just like you said, dropping emails. And so how do you manage them? Yeah, I mean, I... Look, at the end of the day, I, I'm not, I, I've seen people experience what you're talking about. And I want to respect that that's a very honest and accurate experience. And particularly when CEOs are stressed out, they, they, you know, there's, there's never going to be a sufficient amount of support that you can provide to them other than writing a check to cover their, the entirety of their round. But I think the main challenge is the mismatch in expectations between what founders perceive you can do for them and what you actually can. And so I think what we try to do is be very clear and explicit of like, here's how we can help. Here is, you know, who have you talked to? Here's a list of introductions we can make. Here's a list of introductions we can try to find our way to. Here's feedback on your deck. Right? We, I think we don't overpromise. And so uh, perhaps we, we just, we meet our people's expectations. I also think that sometimes people just like to look busy and stressed out because it makes them feel powerful and useful and important. At the end of the day, like if you have 40 portfolio companies, which we do, and 40 portfolio companies are on fire, something bad has happened, right? Because we, yeah. we've now gone in our funds, we've gone through global pandemic. We've gone through the last six months of a major stock market downturn, which is absolutely affecting the private markets. And I would say at any given time, one or two portfolio companies might be concerned or need a little extra support, but it's never 40. And so I think people like to overstress when the reality is like these things have their own timelines and life cycles and experiences. And I don't know, maybe it's my meditative nature, but I just kind of assume that things unfold in the, the universe never throws more at you than you can handle. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I've noticed that you raise like a $200 million fund every two years, and then you invest in 20 companies, right? Am I wrong? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So what do you think is going to be your breaking point? <laughs> I mean, I think this is a pretty sustainable factor, right? So for one, we don't 
we we don't take a lot of board seats and we I, I was very mindful of this as we started the fund, which is to be honest with ourselves about what what we can handle and, and what's appropriate and, and, and where are we at our best and highest use. And so I, I believe that we are probably most useful in that seed series A stage. And then I have no ego around it. I'm very happy to roll off a board or become a board observer or not join the board formally in the first place. Like that's not a prerequisite for us. So I, I think that there's, I, I want to ensure that our companies are surrounded by expertise and people who care and people who are motivated and incentivized by good outcomes. But it doesn't, it, like I'm, I don't believe in having a death grip of I, I have to be in control of exactly what that looks like. And so I'm quite certain that by the time we'll, we'll raise fund three later this year, but I'm already rolling off of boards that I had joined in fund one or stepping into more kind of support structures, right? Because all of these companies, if they're doing well, they've raised subsequent capital, which means other investors have come along for the ride. And so it's not that we abandon them, but their their immediate need of us is less. So this is something that I never understood. So I, I mean, most a lot of these venture funds raise a new fund every two, two to three years. Then um, how do you base those investments? And how, you know, especially if you're looking at startups like that you, you guys invest in, what if you don't find 20 companies in two years? Then you take three years. Okay. It's not, and- I, there's no, there's no... We're not under duress to invest on a, a time scale, you know, and, and I also think that, you know, back to our question of abundance mindset, like there are so many fascinating things that people are brilliant people are working on. You know, I, I, I probably wouldn't do a good diligence job, but I could certainly find 20 like investment worthy, brilliant, exciting companies in six months if I relaxed certain constraints of like, how well suited am I to understand this investment space? And so I think it does take time to find that perfect match between, you know, how can you be of service to the company? Do you understand the space? Can you do the diligence? Can you arrive at the right, the, the right kind of partnership with the company and determine that you, you might be the best investor for them? But yeah, I've never, I've never worried that there are insufficient, amazing, brilliant things that are worthy of investment out there. Yeah. And also, like, uh, is there a point where, like, you end up investing, like, in six companies or something in, in the space of three months? Yeah, I mean, I would say Q4 of 2021 was, pro- I think we made, I think we made seven investments across in, in the last couple of months. Um, I think it was a Q4 and, like, in half of Q3 of, of 21. Which seemed like a pretty spectacular investment pace. The reality is that some of those companies were companies that we had been tracking for almost two years. Uh, and yeah. just, you know, the timing was perfect and we had a prepared mind. So none of those investments felt, you know, unreasonably fast or ill considered. But then in, by the same metric, we've been at less than one investment a month basically since then. So in, in 22, we, we've we been at a much slower investment pace, partially because of the markets, partially because of, you know, as, as markets downturn, as, as people get more 
maybe tight pocketed around valuations, fewer companies are out fundraising. And so the we try to move with the ebb and flow of the markets as we see fit. And sometimes that means a lot is happening very quickly and other times it's a little bit more spacious. But I think we try to decouple ourselves and to the extent that we're able and you know, neither neither rush to make an investment just because we feel like we haven't made one in a while, nor rush to make investments just because we feel like, you know, we're having a barrage of interesting pitches and we need to, you know, we, we got to do something. No, yeah. The one thing that I, I really wanted to talk was about the future of food. I, I'd like to know, yeah, what, what is the future of food? Uh, especially I'm interested in um, like plant-based meat, or like, yeah, bringing efficiency to uh, meat, milk, eggs, and those sort of stuff. Because yeah, I feel like uh, two, two things. One is bringing efficiency and also, I mean, it's cruelty to these animals also, right? We are unnecessarily making a lot of them and then uh, it's just like not a good life. That's right. And, you know, I, I personally don't eat red meat and, and the meats we we do eat, we're very fortunate to have the have the means and the capacity and the, and the closeness to ensure that they're raised in in humane means cruelty free from local farmers but i i think that's a privilege of our you know my personal position in life and what i want to think about is how do we enable that for as many people as possible because the way that we farm and engage with industrial farming practices, whether they be in animal husbandry, eating animals or in crop growth, it's pretty barbaric. And I yeah. think it, you can you can easily look out 100 or 500 years and say that maybe the most morally corrupt thing that humans do on this planet today is how we raise our food. And I think that has full body system effects on us, right? Like our meats are packed with cortisol, the stress hormone in animals that's going to be disruptive to our endocrine system. Our plants are packed with ethylene, which is the stress hormone of plants. They're also chock full of chemicals like glyphosates, which are massive, massively disruptive to our endocrine systems among, among other parts of our interconnected biology. And so, you know, I, I think a lot of the food we eat is making us sick. And I think it's, it's perverse that we, the people who most suffer at the hands of this are kind of the, the, the global poor, right? The, the, the capacity to eat organic and cruelty-free and whatever, you know, nice sustainable means that's not that's not readily and economically viable and available to the vast majority of the world. And I, I think that's exceptionally unfortunate. We have to fix that. So we've looked at this from a couple of perspectives, which is first and foremost, the fact that we raise whole animals in horrible conditions just to slaughter them seems unreasonable. So years ago, we invested in a company called Upside Foods, which is focused on uh, cruelty-free meat. So growing the growing meat in culture in a lab that's completely chemical free, hormone free, drug free. I mean, it's, it's literally the highest quality you can imagine. And there's no suffering involved. We also are investors in better meat, which is uh, taking the unbelievable 
quality of um, the, the, the kind of the umami flavors and the texture and the cookability of mushrooms and, and basically growing uh, these spores in, in huge cultures. It kind of looks like a brewery and then creating a product on the other side of that that looks and tastes and feels like meat because it's so close to it. Um, there's obviously been a bunch of companies in the space, um, Beyond Meat and, uh, and that's right, and others. And, and I think that, I mean, I think this is the direction that we'll go. I also think that we, we probably will still raise animals. And I think that there are, the, there are good ways to raise animals. I think it's also important to remember that grazing animals in particular are such an important part of our ecosystems. But what we need to figure out how to do is how to make regenerative agricultural practices scalable and economically viable for farmers, right? So to actually have cows chomping on the grass, their saliva in further um, uh, chemicals in, in the saliva of herbivores and, and grazers um, tends to promote uh, better plant growth. And their weight actually kind of helps set in the roots in the topsoil. And so one of the best possible things you can do to ensure better carbon capture in our soils, which we desperately need, is to have grazing animals on them. Nice. And so... You know, there's there's a way in which we can grow pretty happy cows and continue to be part of a very natural ecosystem. And I think, you know, we we don't need to look much past the brilliance of so many indigenous peoples throughout the world that have figured out how to manage these landscapes. And so I think the future of food is a mix of pretty spectacular science and also the integration of ancient wisdom. And bringing those two paths forward in a connected manner to make whole food systems better for all people. And I, I think perhaps in, in one way, the most important aspect is, is to make them affordable because it's so concerning. You know, it's, it's very easy in the U.S. to be demeaning of people who eat fast food and particularly who feed it to their children. But the simple reality is it's, it's the only affordable food. Yeah. in some ways that we have in this country. And so, you know, it's not, it's people want to eat healthy. We need to give them choices to enable them to do so. And I, I foresee a lot of good coming in, in, in how we grow crops, how we harvest crops, how we support the immune systems of bees so that they're more viable pollinators. I mean, the vast majority of our grown food is still pollinated by bees and bee populations are dying worldwide, right? So we, we have to address all parts of the food ecosystem. So in terms of what are the most important factors for uh, human health, right? So in my little experiments, what I noticed is there's nothing that uh, contributes more to your uh, health more than food. You know, it has nothing to do with uh, exercise, <laughs> sleep, stress. Food has the most uh, influence. So I, I read about an interesting startup that you invested in which is like, you know, combining uh, cancer ther therapeutics uh, and food. Uh, that I thought was interesting. I mean, you don't think about uh, solving for cancer with food. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I think about this all the I think that uh, another, and thank you for that point, um, Fife Therapeutics is, is the company you mentioned. And, I you know, their, their first aspect is addressing cancers and basically weakening the cancer cells by selectively starving them of non-essential amino acids that your normal body 
doesn't need because it makes enough of those, right? That's why they're called non-essential amino acids. But the your cancer cells, because of how fast they're growing, they actually need those amino acids to come from the food sources. And so if you can figure out which metabolic pathways most affect certain kinds of cancer cells, you can selectively shift diet to address a slight weakening of those cells, which then enables them to be much more susceptible to um, combination therapies. So basically making, making cancer drugs more effective by changing diet. I think in the future, we'll even go so far as to say, okay, maybe my family has some history of heart disease. What foods should I be eating or not eating to shift my likelihood of developing those conditions, right? Can I, can I kind of eat my way around certain health issues by not feeding, kind of not feeding the beast in some ways? I, I think if you've ever had an upset stomach and not known what it was from and struggled to figure out what you're eating that's making you ill and found out how infuriatingly difficult that is to understand... Yeah. Right. It's like unbelievable. It's, it's un- exactly. Um, that has to change in the future. And, and there are a lot of really brilliant people working on it. And so I'm hopeful that at least my children will have a better sense of what what they eat and how it makes them healthy. I think that that future is very, very close. I mean, as we speak, you know, I track my glucose through a CGM all yeah. the time. So I, I know what is giving me spike and what is not. And the conclusion there is, I can only eat eggs. Rest everything else gives me a spice. So it's it's frustrating there. But then I think testing your microbiome, gut microbiome, is also a very interesting space. And there are a lot of companies. Um, I think there is a bunch in US and also even in Southeast Asia that's trying to do. Uh, so that's also something that I'm very interested in. I think it's a combination oh. of microbiome plus your uh, metabolic. Yeah. Uh, health, health that you can measure and then maybe improve your pleasure. Yeah, we're definitely infuriating, especially there are like a general, like a, a lot of people who go through their entire life not knowing what is good and what is bad for them, right? Exactly. And, you know, for me, I learned pretty late in my 20s that alcohol just has such a profound effect on my sleep, even a tiny amount. And the, you know, when I when I decided to essentially just not drink alcohol entirely, I was just shocked. And I, you know, I, and, and I would say I was maybe having three or four drinks a week, right? So, so even well below normal standards, but the extent to which my sleep got better, right? And I had the same, I, I tracked, you know, my sleep and my glucose. It was just shocking to me. I was, and, and I think all of us recognizing that, yes, we're all human, but we have so much diversity, among us, diversity yeah. in our biome, diversity in our metabolisms, diversity in our cognitive functions. And I think we really need to honor that. And I think the technologies and the scientific knowledge that are being developed will, will help us each as individuals live kind of to the best of our abilities and our, our healthiest lives. And I love that you track your glucose. I think that's brilliant. My father's side uh, has a history of diabetes. So just making sure that I don't end up with diabetes. Mm. I, I think uh, a lot of these non-communicable diseases uh, kill more people nowadays than the communicable diseases. Uh, a lot of people don't realize it. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, right. I mean, heart heart disease is a perfect, perfect example. 
Uh, cholesterol also by the way uh, <laughs> is uh, pretty bad for me <laughs> um, oh no well, it sounds and, like and, you're staying on top of it yeah but but again i think uh, the, the the reason is something that we've already talked about uh, because uh, i came to singapore when i was 17 and then the, from for like 17 18 years one of the easiest and uh, cheapest food available is mcdonald's <laughs> so probably that's the reason <laughs> Oh, thankfully, our systems are so resilient, right? So, so turns out we we can improve our gut biome, and yeah, our, our systems are really resilient to to these kind of temporary off balances. So, it sounds like you're eating really healthy now. So, hopefully, your cholesterol will yeah. will shift in kind. Another thing that I really wanted to talk to you about was about energy and like what what are the kind of energy sources uh, that might be like really maybe can bring down the cost of energy uh, in future. So I, I was sharing this earlier also before we started recording about the EROI <laughs> and uh, apparently things like solar and uh, nuclear has very small EROI when compared to uh, oil uh, in the 1900s or even 1930s. So then uh, we don't have like a very cheap energy source. So, uh, and if you don't figure out a cheap energy source, then it's going to be difficult because our energy needs are only growing uh, every year. That's right. Yeah. And I I think, right. So for anyone um, not immediately familiar with EROI, it's the energy return on investment, which can broadly be calculated by kind of the, the ratio of the energy required to make an energy source and then the energy that comes out of it. So that might be unintuitive, but the way that you can think about it is a, a solar farm is uh, produces some amount of energy, but there's a cost to building that solar farm, right? There's, an, there's the embodied energetic cost of making all the photovoltaic cells and then actually dry, shipping them out to the land where they're going to be installed and the actual installation and the maintenance. And so different, they're, different ways to calculate this in terms of kind of the what gets thrown into the energy input in and it's one of the reasons that it's so hard for for us to switch away from hydrocarbons because at the end of the day for the vast majority of our modern energy economy it was so cheap to extract oil and oil is so dense in terms of an embodied energy that the EROI of something like oil is just, it's spectacularly good. But as we talked about, you and I just, just before we, we hopped on this podcast, it, it's, it's been getting worse over time, right? So, and, and that makes sense, right? So at, at some point there was lots of oil reserves in a ton of wells and those wells weren't that hard to tap and we're using a lot. So you have to drill deeper and deeper and harder and harder places. We also put thankfully, environmental constraints on these hydrocarbon companies. So they, they couldn't, you know, they, their operations got more expensive because they need to start acting with better stewardship to the lands that they operate on. Also building pipelines is expensive. And people panic about this because they say, oh man, we're having more and more people on the planet. Our energy usage is going up and the EROI of our most prolific energy sources is going down. Those are two trends you don't want to see in opposition with each other. 
But I think that there's a couple important things, which is one, there are certain more renewable energy sources that have pretty good EROIs. So we talked about hydro briefly. That's a pretty good one. Dams turn out to not be that expensive to build. Now, dams have other challenges, which is they tend to divert and change river ecosystems. And so I want to be mindful that hydro probably isn't the right answer in a lot of places. Solar has only gotten better in terms of the, the efficiency of the cells and their longevity. But I think what's most exciting, right, and we're investors in this, so, so take my, my bias here, um, is things like fusion and this kind of not new resurgence in an interest in nuclear energy, because the EROI on those, while classically have been expensive, um, Commonwealth's fusion plants are actually quite good. I, I don't have an exact number for you at the moment, but the whole vision of Commonwealth's fusion energy is that they're going to be able to, because they have this exceptionally strong electromagnet, the strongest on earth, they're able to create and maintain very powerful plasma in a much smaller space. The reason that this matters is that basically a build cost scale linearly, right? So if you can build a smaller plant to contain a more powerful plasma, your EROI should go up. And so I think that's exceptionally powerful. Um, I think a lot of the challenge in renewables has also been a question of storage, right? So wind and solar are pretty good, uh, but only when you can actually operate like behind the meter, it, which is to say that you don't, you don't have to account for transition, transmission losses and, and you can run an energy facility that operates in time with when the renewable is online. And so I think placing more industrial processes in places like behind the meter solar farms, where, where you know, you kind of sidle up a solar farm in some industrial process, I, I think that's a natural future. The other aspect of, of energy that I'll, I'll just have to poke at is a lot of people are talking about the new hydrogen economy, and particularly using hydrogen as a fuel. And I would just ask, I would just ask people go look at the EROI of hydrogen as a fuel source before they before they talk about hydrogen fuel with any large scale vision because it's it's kind of demonstrably been negative for a very long time and perhaps I'm uninformed on some of the latest but I think that it bears keeping in mind that this is a really important ratio to consider when we think about how we're going to enable more energy resources. The last piece I'll make on my little uh, monologue here is while many, while this can look particularly concerning in terms of like our energy usage, I think it's also worth commenting that the that so many of the the systems we use are getting so much more efficient, right? Like our compute has gotten way more computationally efficient. Now we're solving larger and larger problems, but I think overall, we as as we move through this new era of kind of computer, like the the computer industrial revolution, right? The, this um, this computationally mediated energy future. I, I think it's important to remember that like we we are getting more efficient about our energy usage, particularly in our food production systems, and so. I don't think it's all doom and gloom and that that we're certain to run out of energy anytime soon. 
and and here's hoping for more exponential technology shifts that yeah. that will help us write the respective slopes of these two curves relative to each other. I'm pretty confident that you know human beings will make sure that the future is not so grim. <laughs> I hope so, uh, and and I think that we're all hopefully starting to care for each other a bit more and recognize our differences, but also the worth in those differences. So I'm, I'm hopeful that there are a lot of people who care about everyone on earth. And so we hopefully will not make decisions that just unilaterally support one, one group or type of peoples over another. I think we need solutions that are in service of everyone on this planet because we're all in this together and we haven't figured out a different planet. And I particularly like this one. This has been a wonderful conversation, Mariana. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's been such a gift. And uh, thanks for staying up so late. <laughs> no problem. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please follow Understanding VC wherever you're listening to this and also share it with folks who might be interested. Thank you.